Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the exodus of ministers from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's cabinet, further isolating the scandal-plagued leader to the point where he will soon have to step down or be sacked by his party. Joining us from the UK is Paul Whiteley, Professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex. His research is in political communication, political economy and elections, public opinion and voting behaviour, and his latest book is Brexit, Why Britain Voted to Leave the European Union, co-authored with Harold Clark and Matthew Goodwin. Then we'll examine the possibility that Belarus will soon enter the war against Ukraine as this dictator bends under enormous pressure from Vladimir Putin to deploy Belarus's 100,000-man army on Ukraine's northern border, creating an extra front for the already hard-pressed Ukrainian army to fight on. Joining us is David Marples, the Distinguished University Professor in the, in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, and the author of a number of books, including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections, Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. His latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass, Origins, Context and the Future, and he has an article at Canada's National Post, Here are the terrible costs of Vladimir Putin's enduring war in Ukraine. Then finally we'll get an appraisal of the Supreme Court's attack on the Constitution and the rights of average Americans as the far-right supermajority of justices heads into radical territory with more and more nakedly political rulings that could lead the United States into a one-party rule by a tyranny of the minority. Joining us is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at MS College, and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looning Electoral Meltdown in 2020, and we will discuss his article at The Guardian, The U.S. Supreme Court is Turning the Constitution into a Suicide Pact. The Constitution is being used to destroy the very democratic governance that it was designed to protect. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is Paul Whiteley, who is a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex, uh, whose research is in political communication, political economy and elections, public opinion and voting behaviour. And his current project is Brexit, Why Britain Voted to Leave the European Union, which he co-authored with Harold Clark and Matthew Goodwin. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Whiteley. Hello. So, Paul, what is the the fate of Boris Johnson as, as more and more of his colleagues desert him? Dozens have quit. Apparently, though, he's still in control of his own fate in as much as the Conservative Party's rules 
make it clear that a leader who wins a confidence vote, as Boris Johnson did in June, is immune from another challenge for 12 months. So where does it stand with this exodus of support amongst his colleagues at the same time, this protection he has from winning a previous uh, vote of no confidence? Well, unfortunately for him, it's not a protection. Um, What we've been seeing over the last uh, 12, 24 hours is the British government essentially disintegrating with um, lots of members of the government, ministers in various departments, resigning. And I think the total is well into the 30s now. And this has put him in a very precarious position. Now, as regards the 1922 committee, as it's called, which is the committee of backbenchers that organizes the uh, election for leadership, it's certainly correct that the existing rules say that there can't be another leadership election after the previous one, which, of course, took place only a month or so ago. But, and here's the but, um, a newly elected executive committee of this uh, organization will emerge next week, and that committee can change the rules. So if it turns out that a majority of the members of the newly elected committee are rebels and want uh, Boris Johnson out, they'll change the rules, they'll call an election, and given that on the previous occasion, uh, 41% of his party in Parliament said they had no confidence in him. It's almost certain now, because of the rows that have been going on, that more than 50% would say this, and he then is forced to resign. He's actually not resigned. He's, he's going to be sacked um, So it may be um, within the next 24 hours or so that he sees the inevitability of this and he actually resigns. But at the moment, the position he's taking is to carry on regardless and uh, try to divert attention from uh, the problems he's facing. So the leader of the opposition, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, has described Boris Johnson's efforts to hold on to power as a pathetic spectacle And he's described the few remaining supporters for Boris Johnson as a Z-list cast of nodding dogs. (laughs) That's right. That's parliamentary parliamentary rhetoric that can occur um, in these uh, very, you know, the atmosphere in the House of Commons has been really uh, very, very tense all day and very... There's a great deal of turmoil, and uh, what uh, Keir Starmer is doing is giving voice to that. Um, For those of your listeners who may have liked uh, Monty Python, the head of the Scottish Nationalists who were represented in uh, Parliament said that uh, he thought the position of the Prime Minister was the same as the dead parrot sketch, which is one of the Monty Python classics where one person is trying to convince, uh, the salesman is trying to convince the other that the parrot he sold him is not dead. (laughs) And um, that's the uh, stage at which uh, things have got. It's got a bit farcical, and in effect, when a leader becomes a matter of joke, a joke, 
it's hard to see how they'll survive. So my guess is he will be gone within, uh, probably within a day or two. And again, I'm speaking with Paul Whiteley, who's in the UK, where he is a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex, and his research is into political communication, political economy and elections, public opinion and voting behavior. And he is the co-author of Brexit, Why Britain Voted to Leave the European Union with uh, Harold Clark and Matthew Goodwin. So has Boris Johnson, as many have suggested, been using the war in Ukraine as a way to hold on to power by taking a prominent role? And did he assume that somehow that would insulate him, that he's supporting a country in the midst of a war? Yes, and actually many people think, including myself, that he's done a good job in supporting the Ukrainians. So uh, the position of the Prime Minister is not all bad, but unfortunately, from the point of view of the British public, the Ukraine war is a secondary issue. I mean, they're in favor of supporting the Ukrainians and are shocked by the revelations coming out of the war about Russian atrocities and so on. But the main concern they face is not dissimilar to the United States. It's concern about the cost of living, inflation. And that is really preoccupying people. Gas prices are a big issue, uh, heating oil and so on. And the problem is that he's got very few suggestions about what can be done about this. I mean, in part, because it's a worldwide phenomenon. But even so, electorates tend to hold their leaders, and this is true in the United States as well as in Britain, responsible for a bad economic performance, and he's suffering from that. And so the diversionary tactics um, might work if he was making a success of the number one issue, but he's not. So I think he's run out of road in terms of, um, of all of this. And as you know, unlike the United States, where, uh, you know, a president, uh, there is a well-organized process of one a vice president taking over from a president and so on. Here, there has to be an election if Boris Johnson resigns in the Conservative Party. And we don't know who might emerge as the new leader. Um, several people, I've no doubt, will try to bid for this, um, and they may be organizing their campaigns even as we speak, but it's not clear who the new leader will be. But once he or she is appointed, they can carry on as prime ministers until the constitutional, uh, final constitutional date for the election next election, which is December of 2024. So they've got two years to get themselves established. And I think a number of conservatives are hoping that this scandal might fade and a new leader with a bit more stability and so on will help them to win support. But right now they're losing a lot of support. Well, there are, of course, similarities between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. And of course, Donald Trump is always been one step ahead of the sheriff through his entire <laughs> business life and, and his political life as well. Uh, it seems that Boris Johnson has been one step ahead of every scandal. So 
Is this a scandal too far? Is that what happened, scandal fatigue? Yes. There's an old saying, I think it's in the financial community, which says people go broke slowly and then fast. And I think that's what's happened to him. He's managed to leap away from a lot of scandals of various kinds and overcome them. But it's a serial series of events. And the most uh, telling one what's, is what's referred uh, over here as, to as Partygate, taking actually the name from Watergate, which is the sort of ancestral of all these scandals. And Partygate was when uh, Downing Street and the government were having regular boozy parties while the rest of the country was locked down. People were supposed to not um, go out, uh, stay in small groups. number of people were unable to uh, visit relatives, some of them dying of COVID, a lot of tragedies occurring with that. And uh, mostly people uh, stuck by the rules and, and kept the lockdown going in order to protect uh, lives from this disease. And so they were terribly angry and upset to find out that Downing Street was uh, ignoring these rules. And uh, Boris Johnson was uh, presiding over it all. And so it's a scandal that's very personal to a lot of people. And I think that was probably the turning point when people finally decided that um, they'd had enough. And now um, a relatively minor scandal involving a bad appointment has sort of triggered it. We're at a turning point, a tipping point, as they often say. And that's why now he's actually run out of road. And are you referring to the the Deputy Chief Whip, Chris Pincher? That's that's correct, yes. Um, He's... uh, He's been accused of molesting uh, his colleagues, and he's been doing this for a number of years, and Boris Johnson knew about this, even though he claimed that he didn't. And uh, so it's very bad judgment choosing a chief whip whose job is to police the behavior of the Conservative Party. And if he's a serial offender himself, it looks as though it's impossible to do that. Um, and so I think it's the bad judgment on the one hand that's triggered this, but also the lying about whether he knew, um, which is a serious problem for, uh, for Boris Johnson and has been for all his life. He worked at the Times before he went into politics as a journalist, and he made up stories, so much so that they fired him in the end. So he's had a, a life of uh, telling lies and making things up, and it's now come back to haunt him. So Chris Pincher, the final straw in terms of scandals, you say he molested colleagues. Were they f- female or male? They were male. Yes, they were male. He was at a party in London with some colleagues and uh, claimed that he got drunk and he did this, but it's... Uh, been apparently um, something that's been in the rumour mill in Westminster for a long time. He's been doing this on and off. Um, And uh, so from that point of view, uh, it doesn't look good. So I'm astounded, though, that 
he could have lasted this long because Boris Johnson was one of the main architects of Brexit, which has to be one of the most boneheaded political decisions in modern politics. I mean, it has paralyzed the UK for years and it's divided the country and it's still unresolved. It's a massive self-inflicted wound. It was financed in part by Vladimir Putin to destabilize the country, just as Putin is also helping destabilize America, which is highly polarized and divided and easy pickings, I guess, in a way. So if you look at the broader record of, of all of those lies and promises about Brexit and the resulting long, slow-motion train wreck that still to this day is going on. I'm surprised that anybody in the country supports him. But I guess, is there still support for Brexit? Oh, yes. In fact, the problem with understanding the consequences of Brexit is that it's been overtaken by the COVID pandemic, which, as we all know, across the world has shut down economies. So uh, that's intervened, and we're not really in a position to quantify the exact effects. But I would agree broadly that, um, you know, it was a bad decision. Um, But, and it produced five years, four or five years of turmoil in British politics. And by the end of this process, um, which came to an end in the 2019 general election, One of the reasons why Boris Johnson won that was the slogan, get Brexit done. So a lot of people who were in favor of remaining in the EU, as well as people who um, uh, wanted to leave, were just weary of all the fighting and the infighting that was going on. And so it struck a chord, um, the argument that I'm going to get this done. And... um, that's why the Conservatives did very well in the 2019 general election. They had a majority of 80. And um, he was credited uh, with, the, um, with achieving this. <laughs> the irony is that uh, some years earlier, he'd been a Remainer. Um, and uh, he changed his mind at the last minute, uh, partly because his party had become increasingly... Uh, supportive of Brexit. The Conservative Party is strongly, including in Parliament, but also in the country as a whole, um, a very Brexit party. And so some might think that, you know, he's not really convinced of Remain or Brexit um, because he thought, and he was correct at the time, that this would uh, give him the leadership of the Conservative Party, and he was right. He achieved that. But I don't think he feels strongly either way uh, about the issue. So it was done for political advancement rather than anything else. But the lie that the UK didn't need Europe and be a part of the EU and that somehow it could uh, replace its trade ties with Europe, with the United States, for example, with uh, Boris Johnson thinking that somehow Donald Trump had rescued him, that's all proven to be a total fantasy, hasn't it? Well, I think you have to look at this uh, through the eyes of a populist leader. Now, throughout the world, uh, there's a number of populist 
leaders uh, from Brazil to to India, uh, Britain under Boris Johnson and the United States under Donald Trump. And to some extent, populist leaders live in a fantasy world. They do. They convince themselves of things which are uh, questionable. And I think he shares that with uh, Donald Trump, this idea that you get an idea, you stick with it, it's all going to come out right in the end, and so on, regardless of the evidence. And so policy gets made by ideology instead of looking at the looking sensibly at the costs and benefits of things. And uh, Boris Johnson had that, and uh, also an overweening desire to um, advance their own power and influence. And this is a shared thing with a lot of populist leaders. And just as Donald Trump was a populist leader in the United States, then Boris Johnson is in Britain. But they don't usually end up very successfully because of this problem. And I think that's what's caught up with him. Well, Paul Whiteley, I thank you very much for joining us here. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Whiteley, who's in the UK, where he's a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex, and his research is into political communication, political economy and elections, public opinion and voting behavior. And his latest publication is Brexit, Why Britain Voted to Leave the European Union, co-authored with Harold Clark and Matthew Goodwin. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the possibility that Belarus will soon enter the war against Ukraine as its dictator bends under enormous pressure from Vladimir Putin. Look, my lad, I know a dead parrot when I see one, and I'm looking at one right now. No, that's not dead, it's uh, resting. Resting? Yeah, resting. Remarkable bird, the Norwegian blue, innit? Beautiful plumage. The plumage don't enter into it. It's stone dead. Now it's resting. All right, then, if it's resting, I'll wake it up. Hello, body! I've got a nice fresh cuttlefish for you if you wake up, Mr. Polly Ballot. Daddy moved. No, he didn't. That was you pushing the cage. I didn't. Yes, you did. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Marples, the Distinguished University Professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, and the author of a number of books, including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And his latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass, Origins, Context and the Future. And he has an article at Canada's National Post, Here Are the Terrible Costs of Vladimir Putin's Enduring War in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Marples. Thank you. So the war in Ukraine is going to drag on indefinitely, it would seem, based upon Putin's most recent remarks. And then on Tuesday, his national security advisor, the rabid hawk, Nikolai Petrushev, echoed all of Putin's propaganda about liberating Ukraine from the Nazis and denazifying and all of that those lies that this hideous war is based on, basically saying that they're not going to f- finish until they've completely denazified Ukraine, which means taking over the entire country. Now, that kind of 
claim has also been echoed by Lukashenko, the dictator in Belarus uh, to the north of uh, Ukraine, which has so far not ended the war, although the Russians have been using it. They've staged their initial invasion from Belarus. So Lukashenko is now claiming that it's time, uh, quoting him, the time has come for the forgetful Europe to give itself a moral cleansing. And he went on to talk about the great patriotic war and purging their Slavic lands of Nazis and made the claim that the Russians are waging the war in Ukraine in order to denazify and fight the Nazis in Ukraine. And he went on to say the war is not over yet because once again, as the front line, we are defending our historical memory. So does that mean uh, we know that Putin is putting a lot of pressure on his pal Lukashenko, and so far Lukashenko has avoided entering the war with his, what, 100,000-man army, but they met recently, and it looks as if maybe Lukashenko is laying the groundwork for entering the war. What do you think? Well, it's difficult to know with Lukashenko where exactly he's coming from because he says different things at different times. And the statement he made the other day was on the official anniversary or the National Day of Belarus, July the 3rd, which is the day that the Soviet armies liberated Minsk from the Nazis and therefore is quite likely to come up with something sounding quite bellicose on that particular day and demanding that Western powers should pay more attention to the war and its legacy and pay attention to the so-called debt that they owe the Soviet armies for liberating Europe. Um, on another occasion, he has said also that Belarus is taking part in the official Russian special mission in Ukraine to denazify Ukraine. But he's also said that Belarus was, will not send troops into Ukraine. And I think there, there's a couple of things here that are worth mentioning. The first is that Belarus is occupied, but there's no international recognition that Belarus is an occupied state. So that on the face of it, Lukashenko is speaking for Belarus and, is, and that whatever he says is what official Belarus wishes to do. Uh, on the other hand, he's very much now under the control of Russia, which has free access to Belarusian territory, even though most Russian troops have now left. But it's still a fact that another missile was fired from Belarus in June. Most of them came in late February, but one was fired in June as well. And there is real pressure, I think, on Lukashenko to join in this war. The other thing is that Ukrainians now have an increasingly negative attitude toward Belarus, and that's something relatively new. That was never the case in the past. Belarusians were regarded as friends, peaceful people, brothers. But now um, there is a feeling in Ukraine that Belarus is part of this and that an attack may come from Belarus. Belarus has said that you know Ukraine will probably attack us and therefore we may have to attack first. And I think a statement was made by Lukashenko saying that if any missiles hit, say, the uh, oil 
oil plant in Mazia, for example, or in, in the city of Gomil in the, in the southeast, there will be a response from Belarus. So it seems to me they're getting a little closer now to, to joining in, but there's still some way to go yet. And again, I'm speaking with David Marples, a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, and the author of a number of books, including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections Propaganda, and The Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And his latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass, Origins, Context, and the Future. And he has an article at Canada's National Post, Here Are the Terrible Costs of Vladimir Putin's Enduring War in Ukraine. But surely, uh, David Marples, the key question would be, it's obviously a dictatorship, so when you ask what do the people in Belarus feel about their neighbours next door in Ukraine, being a dictatorship, it may not be a particularly useful question, but he's a paranoid dictator, right? He's seen um, hundreds of thousands of his own citizens rise up against him because of his last fraudulent election. So, what do you know about how the Belarusian people feel about going to war against Ukraine? Could that begin to unravel uh, his control? Because he has massive uh, security police and internal police. It seems like he's got a big military, but his focus is on protecting his leadership with as many bodies as he can. So what would be the consequences of him joining the war with Russia against Ukraine? Do you think that there's any possibility that this could ignite a match of popular discontent, which is already simmering beneath the surface at any rate. Yeah, it would be a very unpopular move. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to get accurate information out of Belarus today uh, from opinion polls, but there, there have been surveys done, uh, particularly by... Uh, Riho Astapenia at Chatham House in London. And they're small polls. They interview about 980 people directly by phone. And that most recent poll that I saw stated that 90% of Belarusians were opposed to entering a war with Ukraine. But the figures on whether they supported Russia or whether they supported Ukraine are more or less the same, kind of at the same level. Because Belarusians for many years have been uh, subjected to a diet of propaganda, Russian language propaganda from both their own TV and radio and media and also that of Russia. And it's increased of late since the elections of 2020. It's increased a lot. And also keep in mind the fact that Many opposition leaders are now living outside the country, including his main opponent in the 2020 elections, uh, Svetlana Sikhanovskaya. And therefore, oh, and I should also say there are about, about 900 political prisoners in Belarus in, in jails and different camps, uh, subjected to very harsh conditions. And you can get arrested in Belarus today for wearing a red and white tie, for example. I mean, you don't have to hardly do anything to get arrested. So it's a very repressed country. And you said simmering beneath the surface, but it's gradually being pushed down so that it's very difficult now to mount a new uprising um, without some military force. And it's not inconceivable that there could be such a force. 
Um, there are two Belarusian brigades fighting in Ukraine and they're well armed and they're fighting on the Ukrainian side. And some people speculated that if this these two units got enough weapons and they returned to Belarus, then they could sort of remove Lukashenko from power. But within the country right now, I would say they're not enough uh, strength to remove him, even if he joined in the war and was very unpopular for doing that. Um, any attempt to do that would result in a, I would say, a full Russian occupation of Belarus, which is not inconceivable. It's just that it's not been necessary so far for, for Putin to try that one. So in terms of the broader war, I mean, obviously, this will be a big setback for the Ukrainians because Russia is making advances in uh, the Donbass and Ukraine is apparently suffering a lot of casualties. The artillery that the Russians have is overwhelming between 10 and 20 times what the Ukrainians have. And all of these promises of weapons coming from the West, you know, they, they seem to be trickling in, but not in quantities that are really going to turn the tide against the Russians. So if Belarus were to join in an attack from the north, that would be pretty tough on the Ukrainians, wouldn't it? It would. I mean, it really would, because they would be have, constantly have to be looking in a different direction rather than just looking at where the Russians are. I mean, the Ukraine did rather well when Russia tried to attack from the north at the start of the war. They were ready for that, and they repelled the attack on Kiev and, and pushed the Russians back. Um, I think now the Russians are focusing on um, the weaker parts of the Ukrainian front in the Donbass, and they've been fairly successful in that, although they're also losing a lot of troops. And the question is, can they sustain these types of losses as well? And it's a matter, I think, whether Ukraine can withstand the attacks long enough for these, you know, say, rocket systems and others um, precision guided missiles and things to arrive that would, I think, turn the tide of the war against Russia. And to have a, an attack coming from the north, therefore, would, would completely preoccupy the Ukrainian army because it's very close to their national capital, which would have to be defended at all costs. So, yes, it would be a, a, a two front war, obviously, would make it much more dangerous for Ukraine. But we hear reports that Putin has been firing his generals right, left and centre and uh, the general that was so brutal in Syria, he was put in charge. Apparently he was drunk all the time and they had to get rid of him. So there's no question that Putin is desperately reshuffling his forces and is determined not to lose. Obviously it would be a massive loss of face for him. So the assumption would be that he must be putting enormous pressure on Lukashenko for Belarus to enter the war because the war's not going well for Putin in spite of the fact that they seem to be doing well in the Donbass. So it's not logical to assume that the pressure on Lukashenko will increase. I mean, Putin, it's amazing, actually, that Lukashenko has resisted as long as he has. Well, he's useful in many ways for... Russia because he is an ally and they don't have many allies in the West at all and certainly not not an ally that's likely to contribute towards Russia's war 
Uh, and you could say that Lukashenko has been around for a long time and, and he and Putin, clearly they're never going to be best of friends. They don't like each other. They're different personalities. But P Lukashenko has been a kind of foil for Putin for many years. Uh, it's actually diverted attention from Putin because he's been even more brutal than, than Putin has in Russia. And so there was a lot of attention being paid by the Europeans to Lukashenko and attempts to reform him, you know, and trying to trying to make him into a democratic politician, which is never going to happen. A very sort of naive attitude. They're two of a kind in many ways in their in their brutality, in their worldview, in the way they look at history. And I think, therefore, it would be a mistake on Putin's part to simply remove Lukashenko because who is going to replace him, right? He's got underlings that have been in and out of power but never really endowed with much authority. They replace each other on a regular basis. So you see the same names coming in and out, but you don't really see a new generation, if you like, of economic reformers or politicians who are, you know, at least a bit more advanced in their in their worldview. So once Lukashenko falls, it seems to me this regime will go with it and, and they have to completely revamp the system. And Putin would have no idea what might come in their place. He certainly saw what happened in 2020. And at the same time, he's been facing some some revolts at the same time. Uh, I think it was in Habarovsk, um, where there was a big protest at the time of the Belarusian protests. And then he looks at, say, Kazakhstan, where you, you also had massive protests for quite a while um, against the regime there, a sort of legacy of the old Nazarbayev empire. So he's looking around and I think he's thinking, well, things could go wrong from any quarter. So let's let's keep um, let's keep Lukashenko in power. Right, but what I was saying though, David, is that I'm surprised that Lukashenko is is held out this long against the obvious pressure he's getting from Putin. Putin clearly wants to be helped out because things aren't going well for him, and Belarus entering the war with a 100,000 man army would be a huge help to Putin. So the question is. How is Lukashenko holding out so long, and can he continue to hold out? It seems likely that the pressure from Putin is going to intensify. I think it is intensifying all the time. And Lukashenko's resorted to all kinds of, of subterfuge. I mean, he's, he's changed the constitution, virtually rewritten it based on the Russian constitution, but also in a way that allows him to stay in power indefinitely and to call his own people's assembly for major decisions. He's resisted Russia's attempts to set up a pro-Russian political party that could eventually take over power. So I think for Putin, the problem is removing Lukashenko is could be dangerous for him simply because a replacement could be much more dangerous for Putin. And it could bring the country back into the streets again if there's an opportunity for, for a change of regime. So you keep him there for that reason. Um, but Belarus has also got its own set of problems. It's very close to default. And 
many of its banks likely could go bankrupt. And it's reliant on Russia for energy resources, particularly oil and gas, uh, which is, in the past it's refined the oil and resold it to Europe. And this is how it's made most of its money. And industries like potash, which is you know going at about 50% of capacity, and now is struggling to find export markets because Lithuania shut its doors finally um, to the coastline. Belarus being being completely landlocked. So Belarus is in pro- is in trouble from all these different uh, aspects and has to rely on Russia. So you know ultimately I would agree I think Belarus is going to be forced to enter the war, but it's a question how long you know it's going to take for Lukashenko to do that and how long for Putin to say you know you either do that or we're just going to come in and occupy your country. Um, even even though I would say it's already occupied. So I think it's you know it's it's coming to that. But I don't know exactly when it would happen. Well, David Marples, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yes, it was a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Marples, who's a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta and the author of a number of books, including The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And his latest book is The War in Ukraine's Donbass, Origins, Context and the Future. And he has an article at Canada's National Post. Here are the terrible costs of Vladimir Putin's enduring war in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an appraisal of the Supreme Court's attacks on the Constitution and the rights of average Americans. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grofield Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College, and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. And his latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2022. And he has an article at The Guardian, The U.S. Supreme Court is Turning the Constitution into a Suicide Pact. The Constitution is being used to destroy the very democratic governance that it was designed to protect. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Douglas. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course, the the notion of the Supreme Court turning the Constitution into a suicide pact was uh, expressed by the Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson. When was that? That was a long time ago, right? Yeah, it was about the mid part of the 20th century. He was appointed by um, Roosevelt, and basically he was uh, just observing in one of the cases that he was deciding. He was basically saying, look, whatever way we, the members of the Supreme Court, interpret the Constitution, we should not interpret it as a suicide pact. Uh, That seems like a pretty obvious piece of wisdom, yet it does seem to be a little bit lost upon the members of the present court, at least the six-person majority. So... What we've uh, witnessed in this last flurry of decisions uh, before the Supreme Court shut down last Thursday, of course, in doing so, it 
tossed a hand grenade into our politics. Again, we've seen it happen before with John Roberts striking down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, saying that we were, we're over racial problems in the South and we don't have to pre-clear these, these states anymore uh, in terms of their election um, rules. And, of course, immediately uh, the pre-clearance was taken away. These same states introduced all kinds of voter suppression. So there's an example of a kind of disconnect between reality and um, this sort of sunny idea that we are over racial strife in this country. The same happened with Citizens United, which has massively increased the amount of money in politics, largely helping the Republicans, particularly with dark money. And dark money was the vehicle that Leonard Leo and the Federalists used to stack the federal bench and get three far-right justices on the Supreme Court in the Trump years based on $250,000 of dark money raised by Leonard Leo. So just as they were leaving, they tossed this grenade suggesting that these independent state legislatures uh, theory, which is completely bogus and considered radical and way on the fringes, is likely to come back in 2024 and that will allow what Trump was unable to do in his post-election flurry of activities with Rudy Giuliani coming up with fake electors and all this kind of stuff. Well, the Supreme Court may well legitimize that and uh, basically be putting a nail in the coffin of American democracy. So I can't believe that at this point, we still consider them, this ultra-right-wing majority, to have any legitimacy. They are so clearly have become political activists in robes. Yeah, I mean, that that's certainly uh, well put. Um, you know, you, you could say that, um, I mean, the Supreme Court ultimately is uh, obviously dependent on the other branches of government. Uh, for the enforcement of its decisions. It doesn't have any police power. And historically, one says that, you know, the source of their power is their legitimacy. And it does seem like um, they're kind of engaged in, you know, it's almost as if they're prepared to flex their muscles in order to get these short-term, uh, almost policy victories in return for basically destroying their legitimacy. I mean, they seem to be, I mean, someone who does seem to be concerned about their uh, perceived legitimacy is Roberts himself. He seems to be an institutionalist. And it is interesting to observe that even a very conservative chief justice like Roberts is not in control of his court. I mean, the control of the court has now swung really in the direction of people like uh, Clarence Thomas, who really is what we could say, you know, a real right-wing ideologue and uh, and someone like Alito. Um, so it, it is it is a pretty shocking thing. I mean, a lot of people talk about this as being a, a very kind of a conservative court. And I think, as you pointed out, Ian, conservative doesn't begin to, to describe them. It really is a radical court because it's a court that's willing to, uh, in the name of their perceived understanding of what uh, the Constitution means, they're engaged in really a radical project of rereading an unsettling constitutional uh, jurisprudence. And they seem hell-bent on, on going ahead and just flexing their muscles. 
And again, I'm speaking with Lawrence Douglas, a James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump in the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian. The US Supreme Court is turning this constitution into a suicide pact. The constitution is being used to destroy the very democratic governance that it was designed to protect. Well, the notion of being judicious is the idea that you're you're careful and thoughtful and fair and balanced, right? I mean, I'm paraphrasing a dictionary a version of what judicious means, but a judicious temperament, which would seem to be a prerequisite for a judge, and a, particularly a Supreme Court justice, this is the opposite of the personalities of both Alito and in particular Clarence Thomas. He's an angry, bitter man, and so is Alito. And in fact, in 1993, Clarence Thomas told his law clerks that the Liberals, meaning Teddy Kennedy in his confirmation hearing over Anita Hill, the Liberals made life miserable for me, and I'm going to make life miserable for them. And that's exactly what he's doing. Isn't this a grudge match? Yes, exactly. So in 1993, that's exactly right. And he really does seem to be someone who has uh, a, a real axe to grind. I mean, and, and you know, you read what he writes, and, and he says shocking things. I mean, in his concurring opinion in the uh, Dobbs decision, which overturns Roe v. Wade, you know, he goes along and he says, uh, I think the entire right to privacy jurisprudence is, he describes it as demonstrably wrong. I don't know what demonstrably means in this context. I don't know how you can demonstrate that something is wrong. Um, also, it seems like an astonishingly, uh, not just ideological, but also presumptuous and arrogant claim to make in as much as you have dozens of uh, excellent Supreme Court justices all over the course of decades accepting the right to privacy. But he would really kind of, you know, push us back to a time in which, um, let's say, uh, consensual gay sex could be uh, criminalized. He's perfectly happy with that outcome. In fact, he's so He's so rigidly ideological that he doesn't even think through the the consequences of his own positions, because if we were to really get rid of the right to privacy entirely, then there's nothing to say why a state couldn't, for example, require abortion if it made some kind of showing that, for example, uh, in the interest of population control, they needed to uh, suppress the number of babies born. So he doesn't even kind of think through the, his own uh, rigidly ideological positions. So one of the things that just came up in this recent massacre, gun massacre on the 4th of July, where 70 shots were fired by this troubled young man, it was able to purchase an arsenal of guns and he fired into the into his own neighborhood, citizens of his own neighborhood, killing seven and wounding 30. That particular suburb or township outside of Chicago, Highland Park, Justice Thomas complained about their gun laws some time back. I mean, (laughs) it's surreal. And Lawrence, I keep saying this, but I don't know why people haven't picked up on this. If the recent decision to take away New York's over 100-year-long gun safety laws and force blue states to have open carry like red states have. Had that law been in place on, on January the 6th at the U.S. Capitol, can you imagine how many of those proud boys and all of those other 
thugs that desecrated and stormed the Capitol. They'd all have been armed, and then the police would have been in a, in a gunfight, and it would have been absolute mayhem. So it leads you to question the sanity of these people. What, what makes them tick? What, what alternative universe do they inhabit? I mean, it is interesting to observe that in this, in their radical Second Amendment jurisprudence, they do recognize, for example, that it would be permissible to bar guns from being brought into courts, for example. So they, in a sense, kind of insulate themselves from the very kind of destruction that they are willing to um, permit um, the rest of the country to um, experience. And again, this is this is why I think it's important to bear in mind that this is not a conservative court that's being mindful of a well-established Second Amendment right. I mean, uh, from 1791, from the ratification of the Constitution until 2008, uh, the Supreme Court had never once struck down a gun regulation law. And it was only starting in 2008 in their Heller decision that they kind of, out of the clear blue, um, decided that um, rather than being a tool for maintaining a militia, which is what the Second Amendment text seems to explicitly say, uh, the Second Amendment actually guarantees an individual right to gun ownership. And Clarence Thomas, in this uh, most recent opinion in the New York State Rifle v. Bruin case, he basically says um, Second Amendment should be treated in the same way as the First Amendment, which is, again, if you think through that, it's a radical thing to claim. I mean, the idea is that the state would have no more power to control uh, our gun ownership as it has to control our free speech. What a, what a crazy proposition that is. Well, Roberts, the so-called um, the less conservative, I don't know how you describe him, member of this 6-3 split. He voted along with the rest of them, didn't he, in this uh, New York State rifle versus Bruin? Yes, exactly. I mean, you did have uh, members of the court, for example, Kavanaugh, he concurred, and it seemed like he concurred in that opinion, simply to engage in some kind of damage control over Thomas's, uh, in a radical statement about equating uh, the Second Amendment with the First Amendment. Uh, he went out, that is, Kavanaugh went out of his way to say, um, look, nothing that we're um, writing today would have any kind of um, effect to prohibit um, licensing requirements for guns, which arguably would follow from uh, Thomas's opinion. I mean, if you took Thomas at his word, um, I don't see how you could have licensing requirements. We certainly don't have licensing requirements in order to make speech that's critical of the government. So, um why would we have licensing requirements for guns if similar levels of regulation should be appropriate for uh, in the case of both rights? So just in the last couple of minutes, I wanted to touch on what Stephen Bannon once said, that their goal of this radical right wing is to deconstruct the administrative state. And that's exactly what the EPA, West Virginia versus the EPA decision was all about. And this will absolutely eviscerate the government's ability to do anything to protect the public. And this is underway. That's at the heart of that decision. And it goes back to the non-delegation clause that the obstructing Supreme Court justices who were frustrating 
FDR's ability to get the New Deal underway. So we're going back to uh, the early 1930s with this Supreme Court, and they're on a roll to eviscerate the ability of the government. They've already gone after OSHA and and the CDC and now the EPA. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, just, it's an astonishing uh, decision. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right to say that this is by far the most uh, conservative or really reactionary court since uh, the early days of the New Deal. Um, so it's really, we have to go back over about 100 years to find a court that's kind of anything like the present court. Uh, the other thing we should, of course, bear in mind is, um, you know, we're talking about the capacity of the government to shape an effective response to an existential crisis, namely climate change. And the idea that the Supreme Court in this incredibly blinkered fashion is now tying the hands of the executive branch to kind of effectively deal with climate change is, again, it's 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 suicidal. And uh, here we also need to bear in mind that you have someone like Amy Coney Barrett on the court who during her confirmation hearings, while she was um, you know, in her enlightened acceptance of science, willing to affirm the fact that uh, cigarettes cause cancer, she wasn't willing to affirm uh, the existence of climate change. She said, oh, politically controversial issue, don't want to go into that. And this is the person who, uh, in whom we're safeguarding um, our constitutional political destiny. Well, she grew up in a household where her father was an executive of the Shell Oil Company, so not surprising that she takes that position. I thank you for joining us today, Lawrence Douglas. I, I'm afraid we have a battle on our hands here. Yeah, indeed. Uh, always good to be with you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Douglas, is the James Grofield Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian. The U.S. Supreme Court is turning the Constitution into a suicide pact. The Constitution is being used to destroy the very democratic governance that it was designed to protect. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by half past nine